Let's pray before we dive farther in. Father, we give you thanks for the assembly of the saints. We are glad to be together this morning. Father, I pray that you will give those who have come this morning ears to hear what you have to say to them. I pray that you will take me, a man of, of unclean lips, and that you will speak truth. I pray these things in the Christ. Amen. Um, right now, we're walking through some of the New Testament one another's. A couple of weeks ago, Buddy spoke to you out of the Gospel of John and talked about how we are to love one another, that the world will know who we are by the way that we love each other. And then last week, Buddy spoke to you about encouraging one another. He had his, um, he had his building blocks. We're, we're a great church. One week we have oversized child's toys. The next week we have this. Um, but he spoke of how we are to build each other up in love. This week, I've been assigned the topic of addressing the idea of accepting one another. As believers, we are to accept one another. Now, the, the idea of acceptance is in the news a lot today. Everywhere from the Supreme Court redefining what marriage is to um, black-white relationships revealing some racism buried in our hearts, rich-poor conflict, all these things. We're, we're being encouraged to accept one another. Some of these things for very good, solid biblical reasons. Some of them less so. And so this morning, we're going to consider together what it means to accept one another, not as the world would have us, but to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Our text this morning is out of Romans chapter 15. We're going to be reading the first seven verses of Romans 15. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up that neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written... The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days, that is, the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And Paul here switches to a prayer of blessing. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together... You may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you. All for the glory of God. Now, at the risk of looking like the the nerdy New Testament Greek major that I am, rather than the, the rugged missionary man that you've come to know me as, I want to start off my sermon by talking about the fact that I think some of our issues with, with misunderstanding what it means to accept in the biblical sense comes from a, a translation issue. You probably noticed that I read out of, a, out of a translation that translated that verse, welcome one another therefore as Christ has welcomed you. Many of you are probably more familiar with the NIV which translates that as accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Now this word that gets translated alternately welcome or accept, other places in the New Testament typically is just translated welcome. For instance, over in Acts 28, Paul and the guys that he's on the ship with have had a really, really bad night. They had a shipwreck. Just as God said, they would all survive. They all wind up floating ashore on an island. And the people of that island built a fire and welcomed them. That's that same word. They received them. They welcomed them. Or over in the book of Philemon, Paul's writing a letter to a brother in Christ, and he's asking him to receive back his runaway slave who has become a Christian. Now, this was a pretty big deal. He's asking him to welcome him as if he were Paul, to welcome his runaway slave back as if he were welcoming Paul back, which is a big deal because 
Legally, Philemon could have welcomed welcomed him back with a sword. But Paul is asking him to welcome him as Christ has welcomed him. So Paul's talking about how we are to welcome each other. Which which are those first steps that we take in welcoming a new believer into the family of God? In our language, particularly as we use it today, there's a significant difference between welcoming someone and accepting everything that they say and do and believe in. And so, if as the body of Christ we are to welcome people as Christ has welcomed us, what do we need to do? What is a Christ-like welcome? I'm going to tell you, it runs a little deeper than, than, than good signage in the lobby or than coffee available in the back, which, which, are, which are really good things. I'm grateful for them. But it runs deeper than that. So how do we find out? Well, we're the people of God. We go to the Word of God. And so this morning, I've got two passages picked out that are going to illustrate for us what a Christ-like welcome looks like. First one of these is over in John chapter 4. If you would turn in your Bibles with me, John 4, we're going to start in verse 4. John 4, 4. But he, meaning Jesus, had to go through Samaria, which, if you're a Jew, that's a bummer. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. So John's setting the stage for us, and he's saying, Jesus is in what is effectively enemy territory, sitting at the well where everybody comes in the middle of the day in front of God and everybody. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. As a father working on politeness with his children, I'd like to think the word please is implied. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, she probably said with a sneer, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, please, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? You see, she's ready for a fight. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Now John makes it clear from the way he sets this stage that Jesus is going beyond what is expected of him. In case we didn't know it, John's adding all these little touches to help us understand that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. I'm still a stranger here in Alabama, but I've come to realize that there may be some conflict in between Alabama and Auburn fans. Now I'll tell you, this Jew-Samaritan thing runs a lot deeper and it's lasted a lot longer. You've got to go back centuries to 2 Kings 17 to start finding out why the Jews and the Samaritans really hated each other. Additionally, back in those days, rabbis did not speak to women in public. So what we have is an itinerant Jewish rabbi, Jesus, speaking not only to a woman out in broad daylight at a place where everybody's going to pass by, but to a Samaritan woman. And he's not just speaking to her, he's asking for some of her water. And she's obviously as surprised by this as everyone else would be, but she hangs with him and she eventually gets a quick lesson from the Messiah, the Christ, about living water. Jesus welcomed her by listening to her, by honoring her when no one else in his position would, and by treating her as important. 
He did what no one else would. In fact, we can kind of see Jesus using Buddy's building blocks, or, or, or Buddy would probably say he used Jesus' building blocks. Jesus decided to love this woman. He looked and he listened to her. He used uh, upbuilding language. He included her and he was very positive with her. These are the ways that Jesus welcomed this woman. Let's take a look at one more example of how Jesus did this. Let's flip over just a couple pages to John 8. We're going to pick up this story in verse 3. It's another story that I think most of us are familiar with. The scribes and the Pharisees, the church leaders, brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, him being Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? John makes it clear that they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Once again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. You can imagine the relief for this woman as she hears those, those heavy rocks thud to the ground as people trudge away. Jesus was eventually left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. So what did this initial welcome from Jesus look like? He protected her. At great personal cost to him, at his standing in the community, at offending the leaders, Jesus protected her. He wound up not having to do this, but I am fully convinced that my Lord would have dove on top of her, and he would have taken those blows intended for her if that was what was required to protect her. A Christ-like welcome protects from the blows of the world. The easy, the smart, maybe the wise thing, for sure the legal thing, would have been to either stand aside or to join in the stoning. But Jesus did differently, though, and he did not join in simply because it was the easy thing to do. But our Lord didn't stop there. Once again, he spoke to this woman with respect. He picked her up, he dusted her off, and he looked her in the eyes and spoke to her. This is a Christ-like welcome. But here's the thing. Those of you who were following along, or those of you who've lived with these stories your whole lives, you know that I stopped too soon on both of these stories. John didn't turn off his camera at that point in time. There's more to both of these stories. So let's go back. Let's finish the stories. Let's see what happens next. Back in John 4, we pick it back up again in verse 15 where we stopped before. After Jesus said, you can find this this living water gushing up in you, the woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't quite get it yet. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. Well, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. And their conversation continues. Jesus is able to proclaim to her more about who he is, what the Christ will do. And he finishes up in 26 by saying, I am he. I am the Christ, the one 
who is speaking to you. Jesus, having welcomed this woman unconditionally, having met her where she was, asked the question. He asked the question that was hard. He asked the question that was difficult. He asked the question that she was dreading being asked, as well as probably on some level hoping she would be asked. He asked her to go and bring her husband. Now, she tried a very artful dodge. I call that situational ethics, what she did there. She, She told the truth but told it slant. But Jesus pressed in and he was eventually able to proclaim to her the truth of who he is. Jesus' eventual proclamation of his identity depended on those steps leading up to it. She finally had ears to hear the truth because of the welcome that Jesus had first extended to her. Let's finish up the other story. Flip on over to John 8. We'll pick up again in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. So Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Jesus protected this woman. He kept her from being stoned to death. And then he dusted her off, he looked her in the eyes, and he charged her to sin no more. This is a part of the Christ-like welcome. Throughout the New Testament, you're going to see over and over these, these dual themes, this idea of God's absolutely unconditional love for his people and his people's absolute need for repentance and transformation. In order to be a truly authentic Christian embrace, it has to be unconditional. We've got to be the ones who cross racial and, and, and national and ethnic and financial barriers that have been set up to divide humanity. We're the ones who cross them but it has to be followed with transformation. All these things to the glory of God. We started this morning looking over at Romans 15. Romans 15, 2, which reads, each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up our neighbor, is used as a rationalization for, for, all kinds of sin, for accepting all kinds of sinful behavior in our neighbors for the good of the neighbor. But when we do that, We're doing injustice to this Romans 15 passage. We're stopping too soon, just like I did with John 4 and John 8. We're quitting too early. We've got to keep reading. And when we do that, we discover that we do all things. We please our neighbors for their good in order to bring glory to God. This is why we do these things. The goal is not to please our neighbors. The goal is to bring honor to God. We are, as Christians, to aim to please others if it does them real good. And if it will build up their faith in order to draw them closer to God. But we are not to please them if it causes us to distort the gospel or to ultimately hurt them by temporarily pleasing them. We do more harm than good when we accept people in the wrong manner, when we accept people as the world would have us accept them rather than as Christ would have us. There's a quote by a guy named Max Lucado that gets tossed around all the time. It's one of Buddy's favorites. It's one of my favorites. Max Lucado wrote one time, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Jesus welcomed everyone unconditionally, and then he led everyone onto greater holiness. Our Jesus was, in fact, the bringer of a scandalously inclusive grace. But he also brought a fairly intolerant demand of repentance. And if you don't have ears to hear it, a very condescending offer of forgiveness. 
my sermon this morning is, 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 is very personal for me. One of my deepest Christian friends, a man, a man with whom I've, I've walked in, in deep fellowship, has so long desperately wanted homosexual relationships to be an example of holy living that he's now firmly convinced they are. He's allowed his wishes to change his theology in, in, instead of the, the other way, the way that it's supposed to happen. He now attends a church whose main goal is justice for the gay community, and I'm going to be honest with you. A whole lot of their rhetoric sounds pretty good to me. I like a lot of what they say, although I find them continually stopping short. They've, they've got a beautiful video that introduces the dream behind their church, and I want to show part of it to you now. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this very artful presentation of what this church is thinking. I started having this dream. In the dream, there are acres and acres of wheat fields, shining in the sun, countless stalks of wheat standing straight up, obviously waiting to be harvested. And then the combine rolls through the field, churning and rumbling through the grain, with incredible efficiency and power. At first, I'm mesmerized. But then I realize that the combine, for all its efficiency, can only get the stalks that are standing straight up. If a stalk is broken, lying on the ground, it won't make it into the machine. And moreover, the machine itself breaks some of the stalks, rolls them flat into the ground, and all that grain is just left in the field. I wake up from this dream feeling so mournful for the stalks of wheat on the ground. Between sleeping and waking, it seems to me that someone should walk behind the combine, picking up the broken stalks, gently scooping them into a basket, something more primitive and less efficient than the combine. The pastor goes on to explain that she longs for their church to be the place where people who've grown up bent and broken can be picked up by hand and placed into the basket of the family. She wants to be the place where those who've been hurt and injured by the machine of big church and where they can come and finally be a part of God's family. But that's where their video stops. Friends, I desperately want to be a part of a church that starts that way too. I want the landmark family to be the place where bent and broken people can come and they can be met and they can be picked up one by one and we'll care for them. Where people who've been beat up and hurt by other churches can come and find a family that loves them. But I've got to be honest with you, I never want to be a part of a church that stops there. We as the people of God are called to move forward from there. If we quit there, we're just left with a basket full of bent and broken stalks of wheat. Something which does no good for anybody. We've got to together take our basket of bent and broken stalks. And and if we're honest with ourselves... Who among us is not bent and broken in some way this morning? But we take our basket of bent and broken people and on our knees we bring it to the Lord and we give it to Him and we ask the master baker to make something beautiful out of it together. This is the transformation that has to come on the heels of a truly authentic Christian welcome. We are together made into something beautiful by encountering the living Christ. To use more biblical language, Our clay has to get taken to the master potter before it hardens. Or the branches that have been chopped off and that have been ready to be grafted into the tree have got to actually be grafted into the tree before they dry up and are good for nothing but the fire. My friends, yes, there is salvation available to all. And it happens in that moment where we accept Christ as our Lord, where we repent of our sins and we're baptized in his name. 
but there is also a lifetime of sanctification that comes along after that. And sanctification is just our big church word for growing in holiness, for growing in Christ-likeness. Without these two happening hand in hand, without redemption and sanctification, the wheat either gets left in the field by the unloving welcome of a judgmental church, or the wheat gets left in the basket as a loose collection of bent and broken stalks, neither of which really bring glory to God. We've been told lately that the church owes the world an apology for the way that we've welcomed or or maybe not welcomed some of God's children. I absolutely agree. In fact, I think we owe the world two apologies. The first apology that we owe the world is an open confession of our sins. And this morning I want to lead the way in that. I want to confess to you that I have not welcomed as Christ has welcomed me. I have at times led the way in coarse joking, in mocking laughter at the expense of those not like myself. I shudder when I think of the sins that my tongue has committed. I, I, I'm terrified that one of, the, one of these days I'm going to hear the, my children repeating the jokes that I repeated in, in earlier life. And I've also not welcomed as Christ has welcomed by slapping a very thin veneer of Christ-likeness over some racist tendencies buried deep in my heart. I have pretended sometimes at acceptance of brothers and sisters of different races, all while harboring disdain or condescension or even fear in those dark corners of my heart, the one that I don't, those corners that I don't talk about very often. These are the kinds of things that make me, in the eyes of God, and in my guilt, not all that different from a person like Dylan Roof. For these things, I apologize. I repent, and I ask for your prayers. I also think that the people of God owe the world an apology in the classic sense of the word. Besides just meaning that you're sorry for something, an apology can also mean a defense of the things that you believe in or the things that you do. That's the second apology that we owe the world, a defense of our faith. It's what Paul was thrown in the slammer for. It's what Peter tells us to be ready to offer over in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, always be ready to make your defense There's that word, our apology, to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. So how do we prepare ourselves? We do it by reading the word of God. We do it by swimming deep in scripture. The people of God do not define their truth by what the Supreme Court says. We do not define our truth by what CNN or Fox News says. We don't define our truth by what our favorite blogger has said this week. We find truth in the word of God. We read it. We ask hard questions of it. We study it. That's what our three nights of adult Bible study here at VBS are going to be about, equipping ourselves to read and study God's Word. But when you don't understand what you've read, take it to your small group and figure it out together. There's something... It's not magical. There's something, there's something godly. There's something spiritual that happens when small groups of believers get together and... and, and and discern the meaning behind the words of God. You can also take these things to your ministers. I am, I am so grateful every day for the men and women that I get to work alongside. And please, by all means, take your hard questions. I know they're going to love me for saying this. Take your hard questions to your elders. These are the men that we have lifted up, that we have said we see the Spirit in you such that we want to follow you. And so find these men. Seek them out. Submit yourselves to them and follow their lead as they follow Christ. And I have to tell you, when we do this, sometimes it's going to hurt. 
we need to never forget that we follow a crucified, humiliated, shamed Lord using stories written by people who, for the most part, were martyred. We can't forget this. We need to remember this fact. The darkness rarely appreciates the light. We ought to expect pushback. But friends, we also ought to expect growth. Throughout history, the church has grown under the shadow of oppression when she holds to the truth found in God's word. We even see it way back at the beginning. Um, I also stopped short earlier when I was reading out of John 4. Let's read the very end of this section in John 4. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that truly, this is the Savior of the world. Amen. May God give us the grace to become a body where God's lost children can say on a regular basis, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard it ourselves. We've heard it from the living word of God, and we know that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. That's the kind of church we need to be. One thing this church does well is the front row. I was, I was told this before I came. I've seen it since I got here. I've experienced the blessing of the front row. But we have to remember, our front row is only a beginning. My baby girl, Amelie, was baptized last week. And my bride, Melissa, and I are continuing to work with her to help her understand that what she did was an important, a huge step on what is a lifelong journey of growing in Christ-likeness, of growing in holiness, of becoming more like Jesus. But we've come to it now, and our front row is open to all of you. Perhaps you've yet to experience the welcome of Christ. You've long lived with the fearful knowledge that you're a bent and a broken stalk of wheat, but you've not known what to do about it. This front row is open to you. I guarantee you Christ will receive you. He will welcome you. And by his grace, we promise to do our very best to welcome you with open arms and to together grow in greater holiness. Or maybe this morning, you're a little bit more like me. God help you. You've experienced Christ's welcome, but you've been hypocritical in not welcoming others as Christ has welcomed you. Maybe you need to confess hate and sin hidden deep in your heart and you need to ask for the prayers of this body and then be held accountable to a higher standard of holiness in this family. The front row is also yours this morning. Or finally, perhaps you've experienced Christ's welcome, but since then you've exchanged the truth of the gospel for the favor of men. Perhaps you've not been faithful to the word of God, but you've allowed what you wish were true to become truth in your mind. You've sidestepped hard questions. And when given the opportunity, you've refused to take a stand for Christ. The front row is yours as well this morning. Come, let us pray for you. And together we can be made brave. Together we can become strong in Christ. Whatever your need is this morning, come receive the welcome of Christ as we stand and sing.